podcast, Seth Stephens Davidovitz talks about his book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. So, stay tuned. Welcome to Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us Seth Stephen uh, Davidovitz um, and... A brief bio. So Seth has used data from the internet, particularly Google searches to get new insights into human psyche. Seth has used Google searches to measure racism, self-induced abortion, depression, child abuse, hate mobs, the science of humor, sexual preference, anxiety, sun preference, and sexual insecurity uh, among many of those topics. His 2017 book, Everybody Lies, published by HarperCollins, has an was a New York bestseller, a PBS NewsHour Book of the Year, and an Economist Book of the Year. Seth worked on um, for one and a half year as a data scientist at Google and is currently a contributing op-ed writer in the New York Times. He is former visiting lecturer at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his BA in philosophy, Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford and his PhD in economics from Harvard. Uh, in high school, Seth wrote obituaries for local newspaper, uh, The Virgin Record, and was a juggler in theatrical shows. He now lives in Brooklyn and is a passionate fan of Mets, Knicks, Jets, Stanford football, and, and Leonard Cohen. With that, uh, Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. Beautiful. So before we start and, and talk about the fascinating book that, that you wrote, um, walk us through your journey. Walk us through what brought you to this, this juncture. Yeah, well, I was doing a PhD in economics, and I uh, discovered, I just kind of, I don't know, fluke, found this tool called Google Trends, which told you, uh, and many of your listeners may, or viewers may already know about it, it, can t- it tells you where and when people make various searches uh, in different, uh, and you can do it for basically any search and see where they're most popular, when they're most popular. And I kind of became obsessed with this tool to the point that I really couldn't think about anything else. Uh, it was just, I've always had an interest in kind of human psychology and human sociology. I was a little lost, to be honest, and burnt out in my PhD program in economics and wasn't necessarily interested in all the traditional economics questions about inflation and interest rates. I was more interested in questions about human nature. So I kind of just started playing around with this tool and one thing led to another. I was lucky enough. I got a, a, about five or six of very, very lucky breaks. Uh, and I got a job at Google, got to work at Google. Uh, and that was really, I uh, learned a lot there. And I got to write these columns uh, for the New York Times and then got this book deal. So it's kind of all, one thing kind of led to another. Uh, one fortuitous break led to another fortuitous break. And I ended up uh, writing this book, kind of exploring the research that I had done with Google searches, but also just in general, all the doing what all the vast information available about people on the internet could tell us about who we really are. Interesting. And and what's what's your current role? Like, what do you where do you spend your time nowadays? So I'm currently at my apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, I spend a lot of my time in my apartment in Brooklyn. I joined a writer space to try to spend less time in my apartment. Uh, but uh, I sometimes struggle to get myself to leave uh, the comfort of my own home. So, uh, yeah, I, I travel a lot as well. I give a lot of talks. Uh, so I'm going to Russia 
uh, to Moscow and St. Petersburg in two weeks. Uh, and I, I, did, I've been, I was in France last month, so, but, so I, I am out of town a lot. But when I'm, when I'm uh, in town in New York, I work from home a lot. Interesting. And, and by the way, um, thank you for this book. I think this book was, uh, was really exciting to read. Um, and um, everybody lies. Um, uh, I think that's fascinating. Read, so, reading the book. If, sorry. Thank you for reading the book. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating read, and I would I, I definitely recommend to anyone and everyone uh, who wants to understand what all data, what all insights we can get from data. And and before we get into the the meat of the book, so what brought you to write that book? Like, what was the the moment that you say, okay, I need to write something around this? Like I said, I just got a lot of lucky breaks that I think are not normal. And sometimes I feel guilty about them because I'm just like, I know that a lot of people struggle for many, many years to get an agent and to, uh, and to write a manuscript and write a proposal. Uh, basically an, an agent came to me and he, I really liked him, this guy, Eric Lupfer. And he kind of said that he thought my ideas were interesting and that I should think of writing a book. And I, I, I hadn't thought of writing a book before that. Uh, but once he said that, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, that, that would be a, a, cha- a big challenge and could be an exciting project. So uh, that one thing, so then it, it, it literally in a few weeks, I had a, I had a book deal and was kind of off to the races uh, and, you know, wrote it in two. Well, there's a little there's a little hiccup where I had something like a nervous breakdown uh, trying to write the book. <laughs> so but beyond that, but then, you know, within a, once I recovered from that. Uh, I was back, 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 back to the races and, and done with the, the book. Interesting. And so, so now let's, let's get in, into the book. So what, so tell us, tell us the premise behind the book. Tell us what, yeah. The premise, it's called Everybody Lies, uh, which was not, I, I think it's a great title, but I did, I did not come up to it, come up with it. My publisher came up with it, but uh, it, it's, it's basically the thesis of the book is that frequently you can't trust what people tell you in traditional data sources such as surveys, but there are certain data sources where they're more honest, such as their Google searches. So if you ask men in places where it's hard to be gay, places like Mississippi in the United States or Tennessee or Alabama, very, very few men say they're openly gay, but almost as many men as anywhere else there search for gay porn. Mm. Uh, So that's kind of an example of if you ask people, they'll tell you one thing, but on their computer and the, on their internet, uh, on certain, to certain sources, they're really, really honest. Uh, so I kind of explore, that's kind of the big premise of the book, but there's a lot more about, in general, why I think uh, the internet is such a powerful tool to understand human beings and kind of give, a, give us, I think, revolutionary insights into the human psyche. And I talk about my research, but then I just... Uh, again, also a lot of other people's research, people are doing fascinating work with all kinds of different new data sources. Interesting. And I think one thing that when I was reading your book, I found really fascinating was, so data scientists, you have a data with you, you can you can skin it in any direction, right? And 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 how do you end up sort of creating those um, research verticals that, okay, I'll talk about um, uh, whether it's gay search, whether it's, it's female, what body that they like, whatever, right? So how do you end up creating those scenarios or picking those scenarios for your research to include in the book? That's the hardest part. And if I knew the answer, it wouldn't be so hard. <laughs> uh, you know, if there was a recipe, I'd just follow it, but there's no recipe. It's, I've kind of found that the ideas just hit you at certain moments and you don't know, 
you can't predict when they're going to hit. I take a lot of showers. That's one of the reasons I work from home. I'm up to about six showers a day uh, because I found they're really good mm. for creativity and kind of sparking those ideas. But uh, I don't know. They there's really not, there's there's not a science to it. And I could go months without an idea, and then I can in a week have two or three you know ex- good ideas, pretty good ideas. So uh, no, 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 I just kind of hope that magic strikes. Interesting. And um, what are some of the things that you were surprised about? So when you when you started writing this book and and they sort of you did the search uh, around your sort of use cases that you're trying to figure out. What were some of the cases where even you were like stumped that, okay, I wasn't expecting this to come out? I was surprised by just about everything. Maybe I'm just a naive mm. person. Mm. So initially I did all this research on racism in the United States and I was shocked by how many people made racist searches on Google and also how highly these predicted certain behaviors. So the places that made a lot of racist searches also were much more likely to oppose Barack Obama when he ran for president. They were much more likely to support Donald Trump who I would argue and other people would argue uh, said some very uh, racially charged things in his primary campaign. And again, that maybe, you know, particularly now, I think, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't so surprised by that. But when I was doing the research and Obama had just been elected president and people thought we lived in a post-racial society, uh, I found it pretty shocking. But then kind of one of the themes of the book, and I think probably a theme that uh, probably most of your viewers would by now agree with, is that we can't really trust our intuition because we're just always off in understanding how the world works. So I did a study on where anxiety is highest in the United States. And if you had asked me where is anxiety highest in the United States, I would have said New York City. Like mm. without a doubt, I'm from the New York area, there's kind of a joke about how everybody here is so neurotic and uh, Woody Allen for decades made mm. movie uh, kind of making fun of the overthinking, overeducated uh, New Yorker. Uh, but that's not true. New York actually has below average anxiety and anxiety tends to be highest in upstate Maine and rural Kentucky, rural areas more than urban areas, places uh, with more people with fewer years of education. And that's just one example, but it kind of goes to the point that you, we're frequently off in how we understand the world and how we make, you know, I think our, we, we tend to just be misled by our intuition. We really need to look at the data to know how the world really works and what's really going on. Interesting. And I think um, another thing that I, 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 I draw a very fascinating parallel between your book and, and what's happening, at least on the enterprise world nowadays. So we are in a transformative time. So everything is shifting. Technology is shifting. Our perception of business is shifting. Consumer behaviors are shifting. And when you have those, so much of transformation going on, Curiosity is what what jumps in and, and sort of everyone is trying to figure out how to stay relevant, how to stay uh, afloat and in this transformative times. And and even in, in your book, I think what I was reading is human curiosity, like human is curious with their Google searches, trying to figure out and try to figure out answers that they're curious about and all that. And you, you got this fascinating insights and, 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 and sort of um, uh, insights into human psyche. So what 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 do you think? What are some some of the parallels that you draw? From from what you from your experiment or from your this project with whatever is whatever you're seeing on the enterprise world nowadays. Yeah, I think you're right that people are generally lost uh, and confused. I don't know that that's gone up too too much over time. I haven't seen evidence of that. I've just found that people have always been uh, really lost about what they should do and whether they're doing things right. I think people tend to think they're doing things wrong. 
And generally, just people are confused about what's going on in society. So one thing that really shocked me in the Google search data is when you ask people, they always sound very, very profound, right? Like they have really, really serious deep questions about you know, the standard errors of a certain study they read recently. But if you look at people's Google searches, their, their questions are always very, very simple and basic. Like, mm. what is R? How do I use R? Like, uh, you know, I, I think you see that in basically every uh, different area of, uh, you know, whatever you look at an area, the top questions are always very simple and basic. So I think there's a lot of confusion that people hide from the world uh, that they don't really understand basic things about what's going on in society. So that's maybe a parallel I draw. Interesting. And and I think one thing that, that when I was reading your book, one thing that, that comes to my mind was, I think at one point, a um, couple of years back, I was looking for, I think, Black Letterman model, and I was doing what is black. And the moment I said what is black, um, the Google recommendation engine sort of started creeping in. And then suddenly I, st- I ended up clicking one of the one of the top, I think, one, two or third link and yeah. digressing myself from actually what I wanted to search to, um, in, in, in a very holistic environment. Now, do you think that's because uh, whenever I see Google, I, I see that as a problem that, okay, Google has a pop- populism bias with this, right? So anything that Google thinks has highly ranked, they'll, they'll quickly come up with you. And, and then when I draw the parallel, say, going to a doctor, say, if I'm curious about my, uh, if I ha- if this mole is a cancer or if something I'm curious about and if this habit is of the cancer and I go to Google and I search, it's almost like whenever I type a single word, the Google come up with the answer. So it's almost like you are midway in your sentence doctor says oh maybe you have this maybe you have that and maybe so by the time you end up uh, completing your query you're already exhausted with a lot of options and if not you may probably be curious and jump out of the wagon so how much of that bias do you think um, impacts your search or impacts sort of your findings in 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 your book yeah i think what it it it, it could be a factor it could be that you know first of all the autocomplete shows you the searches that are already the top searches. So it's not like these searches are coming out of thin air mm. and nobody searched them and then Google suggests them and now everybody searched them. They're already showing you things that a lot of people have been searching. So I don't think it really uh, changes that these are the top searches that people make. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, you want to be careful. I think there are lots of areas where if you're analyzing Google search data, if any of your viewers analyze Google search data, uh, you want to be careful drawing conclusions. Uh, I think you don't always know why people make a search, and sometimes the searches people make are just out of curiosity. It doesn't mean you know people can make really really racist searches, or someone can search for mm-hmm. gay porn. It doesn't automatically mean that, that person's racist or, uh, homose- or homosexual. Uh, they could just be curious of what comes up. So uh, you are, you want to be careful. But I think on average, when searches are made a lot in a place, that tells you a lot about that place. Uh, and it is a very powerful data source that uh, that is giving, on average, meaningful information about people in areas and how attitudes uh, change over time. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. Interesting. And, and, and now if, if we um, uh, try to figure out some of the um, challenges um, or, or some of um, areas where you think the searches are helpful versus some of the things areas where you think searches are not helpful. Like, have you, were you able to sketch out some of the scenarios in which you say, okay, 
Google searches, people should not even do Google search in, the, in, in, in this particular scenario, whether it's hypothesis or pre-hypothesis, like whichever, like were you able to sort of... Um, I don't know if there's any area where I say that you should, shouldn't use Google search at all. I've, I've, I've actually found that any area that I explore, there's probably something interesting in Google searches. It may not be exactly the question I initially asked, but on any topic, what people are searching is going to reveal a lot. Of, about that topic and, and probably a lot that I didn't previously know about that topic. So I, I generally encourage people to use uh, Google searches more than they have in the past. Uh, you know, the concerns I, I've talked about, you can have a bias that people tend to Google uh, when they don't know the answer. So if you know the answer, you don't need to Google. So if you really, uh, or, or if you can ask someone else publicly, you don't need to Google. So there is a bias towards, for example, like I focus a lot on how people make really, really search for things that they never talk, talk about uh, publicly. So they, the, the, so, you know, they, they, they search for sex and porn. They search for porn more than they search for weather. Uh, now, part of the reason for this is, part of the reason for this is because people don't admit how much they watch porn. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a big reason. That. But another part of the reason of it for it may be that people really are uncomfortable, uh, you know, talking to other people about about porn and about sex, and they're more comfortable talking to other people about weather. So they're more likely to go to Google uh, for the topics that they don't otherwise feel comfortable sharing. Interesting. And and how has your your thinking changed about the surveys? I think I I, I you you men mentioned uh, some amount of. Uh, portion in your book talking about surveys and, and sort of which kind of surveys are better and which kind of surveys are you find effective? Well, you, want be, you want to be cautious, uh, as we saw in the previous presidential election, putting too much faith in surveys because people sometimes, uh, first of all, sometimes they just answer random answer qu uh, questions randomly. Uh, they don't really put much thought into it. And then uh, that's, that's one problem. And another problem is that uh, People can shade the truth, shade their answers in the direction of what makes them sound good, uh, rather than the truth. So uh, again, if, if people don't want to admit something, uh, even though that there's really not a huge cost to telling a survey, people just don't feel comfortable. Uh, people just assume why I, I shouldn't say that, so they don't, that, so, or, or they may not even be admitting it to themselves. So if you ask someone, "Are you racist?" Uh, people don't particularly enjoy. Uh, telling a survey, yeah, I'm racist, or yeah, I enjoy racist jokes, or yeah, I didn't support Barack Obama because he's black, or yeah, I like Donald, Donald Trump's uh, racially charged comments. Uh, so that, that's an area where I think uh, you can't necessarily, those are areas where I think you can't really necessarily trust what people tell on surveys. Or if you ask people about their sexual preferences, mm. I don't think many people are in a rush to tell Gallup or uh, or view the, the truth about their sexual desires, but they they do tell uh, Google and Pornhub and other internet sources uh, the truth. Yeah. Interesting. And now, if if again, uh, if if we draw a parallel between say what public do on 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 Google searches versus what enterprise and and sort of uh, businesses could learn from this behavior, so definitely there is there is an element of. Um, fake news or fake articles or fake information getting their way in on the top of the maybe Google searches or find a way to get on the top of our social feed and, and sort of and influence our uh, decision making. How do you think uh, from whenever you whenever you sort of you are analyzing this data, 
that what some of the businesses think that you realize the businesses could do to sort of safeguard or sort of uh, secure themselves from any of the bias that someone else is in sort of uh, purposely in, uh, injecting to get into your to your drains Oh, well, I think, uh, you know, I'm not too worried. There are, for, some searches are from bots. Businesses put some energy into using bots on Google to try to get their returns higher. Mm. Uh, that's a small number of searches, and Google does a pretty good job of figuring out what's a bot and not counting that in their data. Uh, but I think, you know, the, another thing that your question reminds me of is how can businesses use this data to understand their customers? And mm. I think there are a lot of insights, you know, and again, I think, I put a lot, I put a lot of, I talk a lot in the book. <coughs> Sorry, I'm finding a cold. Uh, I talk a lot in the book about how uh, compare different so internet sources. Everyone kind of lumps together any big data set as big data, right? So Google's big data and Facebook's big data and LinkedIn is big data and Twitter's big data. But... You have to really, these data sets give you very, very different data sometimes because people use them for different reasons. So if you look at Facebook data, people's social media posts, social media likes, uh, they tend to be presenting a public image. Uh, so they're, they're saying who they want their friends to think they are. And sometimes this can give a misleading view of people's true desires. So I compare, for example, the magazines people say they like on social media. And on social media, people exaggerate how much they like intellectual magazines, the National mm. uh, Atlantic Monthly, compared to trashy, gossipy magazines like the National Enquirer, because they don't want their uh, friends to know that they're reading trashy magazines rather than intellectual magazines. So you want to be cautious, I think, in analyzing data. You know, as a business, you don't want to... It's, it's probably not good to focus on any particular data set. You should look at all different data sets to round out the picture. And people may uh, think, speak one way about your business on social media, but do something very else, uh, very different in the privacy of their own homes. Interesting. And I think, um, I think a couple of months back, I was reading this book, Circle. I don't know if you've heard about that, Dave Eggers yeah, book. So, book. So, what, so when I was reading that book, and now I'm, when I sort of start, uh, when I read your book, it pretty much solidifies that that dystopian future that that circle was what encapsulating that hey a company knowing such such sort of intimate detail about someone like what was what was your perception when you were you were sort of uh, looking at this insights what what were you thinking well i i thought it's actually i come from a different angle i kind of think it's a it's a good thing as long as we protect the privacy of individual users if we know on aggregate what people are thinking even their secret or inappropriate thoughts, that's probably better as a society than relying on what people say, which may not be true. So we could learn about health problems that people aren't comfortable sharing, widespread health concerns or insecure bodily insecurities that teenagers have uh, that they don't talk about normally, but that uh, would be that we could potentially help them if we knew about them. So I think, uh, you know, there is the, the negative. That as the Eggers book and others point out, uh, it is creepy that a company can know so much about a human being. Uh, but the positive is that uh, we could potentially use this information to help people. And uh, this information probably wouldn't be 
uh, gathered by any other method. Maybe uh, psychiatrists have known some of these secrets, uh, uh, priests in the confessional and Catholicism have learned some of these secrets, but there haven't been too many sources in Jewish history to whom people have felt so comfortable sharing so much. And it's eerie, but it's also uh, potentially helpful. Interesting. And um, I think um, now let's 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 get on, the, on on your data science side. So when when you sort of decide on take, undertaking some such an interesting project, how do you prepare yourself for that? How do you sort of what are some of the tools or some of the mindset that you have sort of set aside to say hey, I'll I'll be doing using these like what are tools that have you used uh, to undertake? I use all basically almost entirely R now. Uh, I just found it find it really uh, user friendly language. Uh, there are sometimes things get more complicated. I got to use Python. Usually when I have to use Python, I ask my brother to help me. He's a computer scientist. He knows Python a little better than me, and I still am, am pretty rusty on that. Uh, but I find that just about everything I need to do can be done in R. Uh, and I don't know. It's, uh, it's it, it, I, I hadn't used R. I come, again, from an economics background. Hmm. And economists use this pro tend to use this program called Stata. <coughs> But then when I got to Google, everybody there used R, and that's where I learned R, and I, I got I, I found it just very uh, uh, useful language. Interesting. And and what are some of the challenges that have you seen uh, playing along with data? Like what are some of the some of the insights that you have? Some challenges and some sort of uh, learnings from from this 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 book. Well, obviously, a big concern is cherry picking. Sometimes people uh, look. If you have enough variables, some of them are going to correlate just by chance. And I've seen a lot of that in data analysis. Uh, that's probably the biggest, that's probably the biggest uh, sing single problem by far, uh, that people love to, uh, you know, find a, a nice story in the data and just start searching and data mining and cherry picking until they find that great story. Interesting, and 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 whenever sort of you go go on this project of whether it it means uh, searching your sexual preferences or search, searching your your body part that you are embarrassed about and all that, so were you so have you like created an uh, created an, an, an hypothesis first before going into that? Like, how would each of these scenarios come out to be? Like, what are uh, if you have a lot of data to play around with, so how do you sort of um, pick pick a scenario? Say, okay, let me do a search on that and see uh, how what I what I see. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean. Sometimes you don't know until you start seeing the data. So, you know, a lot of the sexual preferences that I explored in the book, I didn't even know they existed until I saw the Pornhub search data and found that not only did they exist, but they were relatively common. So, so for that, for example, for the section on sexuality, I started by just looking at the top 100 searches on Pornhub for both men and women. And right away, you just find things that, again, I'm, I might be naive, mm. you know, in the top 100 that I, I didn't know anybody had. Uh, so that right away is pretty interesting. And you just kind of present, you know, show that to the world. And that kind of changes how you think about sexuality, that why do so many people have this preference? And why does nobody talk about it? 
Interesting. And um, I think another insight that I want your perspective on is this this political scenario that we are we are we are we are into. And then obviously we're getting heading into primary. And I think one thing I remember that I was um, in a DC a couple of years back, and I I was talking to one of the um, scientific research firm, and 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 sort of I told them, and they were trying to figure out which 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 way a particular county will turn. I said, hey, just buy a thousand dollar ad for each of the party and see what's the click rate and what's what how much ads were shown and then from that you can actually figure out the bias knowingly or unknowingly sort of whatever it's happening and you can just figure out uh, so what what's your thinking now looking at the data from your end it, what we yeah, should be aware of there's another danger of data which is frequently we can measure things that aren't exactly what we care about mm. and they can be biased uh, so your example the click rate of different ads, <coughs> it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hypothesis, but it would have to be tested. You'd have to look across a whole bunch of different elections and see whether that really correlates with how the candidate actually does. It could be that uh, in areas, in, in highly Democratic areas, the Democrats don't feel the need to click on the ad for whatever reason. They already know that their candidate's doing well, so they don't want to, they don't uh, feel the need to click on the ad, and the Republicans feel uh, demoralized and are more likely to be engaged in ads, but that doesn't tell you that they're, that the Republicans actually going to win the election. So uh, it, it's, I think there are definitely insights in data and that's an interesting way to test it. There are, I, I bet you, you know, there are ways you can use the internet to get better predictions of elections than we can get with surveys, particularly on these smaller elections, because it's impossible to survey every election. Uh, but you do want to be careful and, you, you know, the, the advantage of surveys, as problematic as they are, mm -hmm. they ask a very clear question. So it's who are you going to vote for, the Democrat or the Republican? Whereas on the Internet, there's usually not a clear question. It's like it's kind of here's an ad. Do you click or are you searching for a candidate and or are you talking about a candidate? And that's not the exact same. You know, that, that's not the exact same thing as voting for a candidate. And it can be. Uh, it can be they, these these types of uh, methodologies can give faulty information. Again, you just have to test them and see if they work. Interesting. And 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 what about the um, sort of spurious correlations? I think um, I, I I don't know if you're familiar with this blog uh, that Miss America and and murder rates are correlated. So what about sort of some of these these parallels that that you that sort of causation and correlation the those uh, debacles, like how do you know that you're not running into something like that when you, when you look at the data? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the, the issues you're just talking about is, is data mining and cherry picking. So there are so mm -hmm. many things to correlate with uh, the murder rate that some things just by pure chance are going to correlate and, uh, and uh, without having anything to do uh, with each other. Now, sometimes there is, it's not pure chance, it's that they both uh, they both uh, are going on the same trend, right? So murder rates have been going down over time. So if you look at any data series that has been going down over time, is going to correlate highly with murder rates, and they could have seasonal effects as well, just as murder rates do. So one of the ways to deal with that is by adding controls. So you can control, for example, for the trends and say. Uh, or control for seasonality and say controlling for a trend and controlling for seasonality, is this still correlated with murder rates? And if you control for enough things, uh, eventually 
you make a better case that there might be a causal role and a lot of things that aren't causal will disappear once you start adding those controls. Interesting. Uh, well said, by the way. And, and what are your thoughts on the, the Cambridge Analytica as in a sort of debacle? Like what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your take on sort of uh, a, a, an agency exploiting this knowledge um, in a negative direction? Like what's, what's your take on that? So my take on Cambridge Analytica is that I don't think they were they were doing anything very sophisticated that actually was effective. So they claim that they could psychologically read people's minds based on their social media profiles and then target ads based on these psychographic profiles. I am highly skeptical based on everything I know about data science and people I know who work at Facebook that they really were able to do this. Uh, also, in general, I think one of the reasons that we hate Cambridge Analytica, and I put, I say we, because I also was mm. not happy with what they were doing, mm. is because they were helping a candidate that a lot of us hated. So, uh, you know, in general, when you think about it, politicians, particularly presidential candidates, <coughs> have been for decades, uh, analyzing huge data sets, people's shopping patterns, people's uh, credit card uh, uses, uh, and trying to use that to predict who they would vote for and whether they should uh, send them, try to get them to turn out in the election. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing that new about using people's uh, behaviors uh, you know, traditionally it's been offline, but now online. I don't think there's really that much that different about using people's behaviors to try to predict who they'll vote for and if they vote for you to put energy into getting them to turn out, uh, which I think a lot of what Trump is trying to do. Uh, now, yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I think the the crisis is a little bit overblown. Again, I didn't like it because I don't. I hate Trump so much that I'm just like you know the fact that data scientists. Were helping him at all. I just found like uh, sacrilegious to the data science community, which should should support reason and science, and not like these kind of uh, narcissistic maniacs like Trump. Uh, but uh, but you know, so but but I don't think the idea that uh, you know if if a normal politician had some firm analyzing. Facebook, public Facebook data. I don't really know why it's such a big deal, but I don't know. Uh, people, people feel differently. Obviously, uh, I'm I'm an outlier here. Uh, I'm probably less creeped out in general by data science than other people are. So I don't know. Interesting. And and I think um, another thing, uh, if if I draw an, an, an enterprise parallel with with sort of human interaction with Google searches, is I think the movie called Client. So there is a, like a, a lawyer that's constantly monitored and figure out everything is okay. And then if we draw a parallel into this scenario, it's somewhat similar to understanding what, what are your customer search, what do they look for, what do you... So wh where do you think are the ethical lines? Or, or like, what do you think are, where, where if I'm a business, how, what's your perspective? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. 
on, on yeah so that doesn't mean there are no ethical issues with data i just mm -hmm. the cambridge analytica one i think was mm -hmm. a bit of a red herring one because i don't think they were that effective and two because you was mm -hmm. using data to figure out who, who people are likely to vote for and try to get them to turn out is such a well-established mm -hmm. practice and i don't think it's that horrible particularly if both sides are doing it uh there are areas where i am much more concerned i'm where I'm concerned about how much information businesses have about their customers mm. and they can use that information. I talk in the book and everybody lies a bit about how casinos try to use data to figure out exactly when a person, uh, how much a person is willing to lose in a casino and try to make sure they lose just that much. And that I find very uh, unethical and uh, scary and anything that gives more power to uh, corporations relative to consumers uh, scares me. Now, data gives more power to both sides, I would say. So, you know, another another way that big data has been used uh, has been to allow customers <coughs> to shop more and get the best price. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of bad for corp individual corporations, except for the corporations that, use, that aggregate different uh, different sites to find the best price, but it's been bad for the individual corporations, but good for the consumers. So I think uh, big data makes corporations more powerful in some ways, and consumers more powerful in some ways. I, I'm 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 scared anytime uh, corporations get too much power relative to consumers. So do you do you see um, a role of government body in sort of in, in ensuring, as you rightly said, businesses many times have too much detail about the customer and their interaction. Do you see sort of, um, I think, and your book is, is, is a great sort of an eye opener for many of uh, us to understand what all actually is going on that we don't have access to, or at least. So do you, do you see a role of government in ensuring that uh, that safety vault is, is built around on consumers? I hope so. I'm a little wary. I think in many ways, now a lot of the data science is moving towards machine learning and artificial intelligence. And that's almost too complicated for anybody to understand. So it becomes increasingly difficult, I think, for the government to regulate businesses uh, when the businesses don't even necessarily know what they're doing and no human being really totally understands what, what they're doing. So in theory, yes, in practice, uh, it might be tough. And it definitely is one, again, one area I'm concerned that uh, businesses will use, just use these complicated formulas uh, you know, basically, they'll just say something like they're trying to make a lot of profit, and then the artificial intelligence will figure out all these ways to make more money uh, that screw consumers, but nobody really understands exactly how they're doing it. Interesting. <laughs> and 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 what is your what is your take on the AI? Uh, what what do you think is the AI's role in future be? Like, what's your perception on that? It's obviously really powerful. I think it's powerful in certain areas and less powerful in other areas. So a lot of the areas I use, the data sets aren't that enormous. And when the data sets aren't that enormous, I think AI doesn't really have that much of a role. People kind of throw AI at these problems where I think a normal linear regression would be just as effective. But obviously, when you get these enormous data sets, like the traffic patterns in a city uh, or you know uh, how cars avoid crashes, then artificial intelligence or uh, you know what what images have cats versus dogs in them then ai is the way to go and has proven itself clearly in 
incredibly powerful for many of these questions. Interesting. And and where where do you see the future jobs coming into this? So like, what do you? How do you see the job market are getting impacted with this AI from from your perception? I think data scientist is actually, uh, in some sense, a better role than artificial and knowing too much about artificial intelligence because data scientist kind of, in my opinion, emphasizes a lot of the creativity and coming up with the right question. Whereas a lot of the tools that artificial intelligence experts have, <coughs> sorry about this cold, I, I'm coughing every five seconds, but, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. but I think a lot of the tools that AI scientists have are going to be automated away. So a lot of what AI scientists do now is kind of fine tune exactly how many neurons to have in the model. Uh, or you know how many levels of neuron, how many levels of neurons to include, and eventually, as computers get more powerful, that's all going to be done automatically. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of just going to say, just throw AI at the problem, and it's not going to take much creativity or human talent to to, to uh, do that. Whereas the data science, kind of asking the right question, telling the stories in the data, presenting the stories, visualizing the data, presenting that data to clients, that's all going to be uh, have a role for humans for many, many decades to come. Interesting. And and if 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 I ask you about um, what is your definition of a a data scientist? Like, what do you call um, a, a good data scientist today? Like, what would you what would you attribute some of the qualities that it's, that today's data scientist should have that that I should hire? So I think again, creativity is really important and undervalued. The technical skills I think are overrated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can learn them pretty fast. Uh, the programming languages, if you know one programming language, you should be able to figure out another programming language pretty easily. So I wouldn't worry too much about exactly what languages someone knows. Uh, but the creativity, that you really can't teach necessarily. You either have it or you don't. Uh, and that's really important skill. Interesting. And and I think in your books, when you were writing that book, so what are some of the hopeful areas? I think I, I, I see a lot of uh, dystopian and sort of very uh, so what were some of the areas that, that you said okay it, it, it gives hope for the future well I, uh, I I disagree with that I think even the dystopian stuff uh, is a little bit hopeful because hmm. I'm kind of saying at least we know this stuff so if we didn't know how much racism there was hmm. <coughs> we wouldn't know where to direct our resources uh, you know, again, anytime you identify a, a problem in society that existed but we didn't know about, or we didn't know the extent of it, that's, I think, a good thing because relative to the past where we did, just didn't know about it, now we know about it, it can ultimately work on solutions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, I, I, don't, I view the book as a very optimistic book. Uh, nobody else seems to view that book, the book that way. <laughs> No, I, I agree. I, I agree. I think it is it is very informative, and and you have a very strong point that uh, knowing these things, you actually it helps you understand that there is another perspective that we should be looking for, and something that we see not, not necessarily always look at the same. And you have to understand the deep story behind what's happening. I think I totally agree with you on that. And and so if if you want um, our readers and listeners to take away something from this book, like what would that what should they, they take away from this book? Well, there are lots of different takeaways. I don't know if there's one big one, but definitely the power of Google searches, the power of data versus intuition, uh, the caution you need in data analysis and 
sometimes looking at lots of data sets to round out your story. Uh, but ultimately, I think the main theme of the book is the power of data analysis, that if you ask the right questions, if you think through all the different explanations and eliminate them, you can really tell stories about human beings that have been impossible to do. Uh, tell with any previous methodology. Interesting. Uh, beautiful said. So now I'm going to spend some time on, on your journey. Like so, in, um, I think we asked all of our guests to share one to three things that has really helped them stay what they are today. Like what would you attribute those qualities to? Like what, what is helping you stay what you are? Uh, I had really good parents, really good family. Uh, I have really good friends, really good mentors. Uh, I don't know, I kind of just feel like a lot of areas in life I grew up very, very, very lucky. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have like, I'm not like a rags to riches story. I grew up like upper middle class with a very uh, together family. And I think those are, like it or not, uh, definitely advantages in life. Uh, they're just lotteries you win. And I won a bunch of those. Uh, I think, you know, I think you got to kind of also recognize what your talents are and mm. follow them. So, you know, my dream as a kid uh, was to be a professional athlete, a professional basketball player. <laughs> and obviously I didn't have any talent in that area. So, uh, you know, I kind of learned, okay, I'm pretty good at math. And over time I learned I'm pretty good at writing and I'm, uh, you know, pretty good. I don't know, at various, various things that, you know, this, that I ended up doing. So I think you kind of got to, as early as you can, recognize what your talents are and kind of cultivate them. Uh, and as you do get better and better at them, you tend to enjoy them more. Uh, so, I don't know. Interesting. And, and what brought you to from, from aspirational uh, basketball player to data scientist? Like what, what brought you on, on this side? Well, my mom had to sit me down one day and tell me that I would never be a professional basketball player. <laughs> Uh, which was, you know, that was a couple of years ago. No, no, <laughs> I was like six. But uh, it's, it's, it was the, basically the, the most, to this day, the most traumatic uh, moment of my life. And uh, it was very heartbreaking because, you know, I think I had gone from, there was a time where they asked me, what, what is Seth, what, Seth, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say basketball player, and it was all very adorable. But then it got to a point where it was just weird, I think, because, like, <laughs> these my parents, they knew there's not no way that's ever going to happen. You know, I was getting older, more mature. I should have a different answer. So uh, once I kind of, a lot of people kind of directed me towards. So a lot of people, my mother, my professors, kind of directed me. You have talent here. You don't have talent there. I tried to pay attention to that, and eventually do. Another thing that's been very useful to me is combine a whole bunch of different talents. So I'm not the best data scientist in the world. I'm not the best writer in the world. But among people who both write and do data science, I'm, I think I'm one of the best, uh, near the top. So we kind of mm -hmm. combine, combine a bunch of skills, then you don't have to be so good at, at one thing. You kind of be, uh, if you're good at, if you're uh, good, pretty good at five things uh, and can combine them, then that's as good as being amazing at one thing. And being amazing at one thing is really, really hard. That's like trying to be LeBron James. You know, like, uh, that's, that's like the best chess player in the world, Magnum Carlson or whatever his name is. That's like really hard. Interesting. Um, pretty good at five things and combining them is easier. 
Beautiful. And so, so what's next um, on, on the book? Like, what's, is there a sequel coming? Is there any interesting yeah, project that you're working on? Uh, there's a sequel, and I'm working on it now. Uh, I'm trying to work on it, but uh, it should be out in about two years. So it's still a while. Okay. Interesting. And, and besides this book, besides um, Everybody Lies, do you have any personal favorites uh, book that, that, you, that you like to share with our lead readers and listeners? Personal what? Uh, any personal book, uh, any any other reading uh, uh, book that, that you want to share with our oh, listeners yeah. and viewers? I really love the book Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Mm. It all is data to show how the world's getting better and better, even though most people think it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> Interesting. And and um, now we are at the tail end of the conversation. Um, so, said, so as a closing remark, um, is there any, um, if, our listeners and viewers would take away some something from this conversation. Like, what would you what would you have these guys take away from this conversation? Uh, hopefully that they should buy my book. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Like, data, big data is really powerful and can change the world. Interesting. With that, Seth, again, uh, thank you so much for 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 your time. I know you you need to rush, so. Uh, uh, I do appreciate you coming and, and, and sort of helping our listeners and viewers understand um, your book and your journey. And I think it's really informative. Um, and we de definitely love to have you back when your, your next project is live. And whenever you want to connect, you always welcome back on the podcast. And thank you so much for, for your time. Thanks so much, Michelle. Awesome. So... Uh, uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain